Hello and welcome to the Behind the Artist podcast with Park West Gallery. I'm Gallery Director Morris Shapiro. If you'd like to view works of the artists I'm interviewing and learn more about them, please visit our podcast site with links to more content at parkwestgallery.com forward slash podcast. International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series, Behind the Artist. Each episode will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers. Naturalist, author, filmmaker, founder of his own research institute and foundation, licensor, PhD and brilliant draftsman, watercolorist and painter, Dr. Guy Harvey is one of the most fascinating individuals and artists I've ever met. In this extraordinary interview, Dr. Harvey discusses such topics as his 17th century roots in Jamaica, his love of Hemingway, the importance of diving in his artistic research, the development and scope of his work in fisheries management with his own foundation, and the distinction between conservation and preservation, and oh yes, his jaw-dropping artwork. It was a thrill for me to get him still long enough to capture this interview, and afterwards my offer the man as an artist and human being was taken to an even greater level. This is Behind the Artist. It's no frills, just real and deep conversation. I'm Morris Shapiro, and I hope you enjoy this journey to the life and art of Dr. Guy Harvey. So, Dr. Guy Harvey, I can't tell you what an honor it is to uh, have you here uh, for the program. I've been looking forward to this for so long. I know there's many people out there who know your work and are great fans of your work, but for those who don't, you're just one of those truly amazing people that astonish me and astound me. And, you know, just to, just to briefly cover some of your amazing accomplishments, uh, you have a PhD in fisheries management, you have your own research center, research institute, you have your own foundation, which is, uh, of course, for preserving marine life, you have written four books. You're constantly creating video and film documentaries. You have something like 14 hours of that material already done. You have your own magazine. That, that's on the ship alone. We've got many, many hours. <laughs> Even more of that, yeah. Yep. Yep. You have your own magazine, yeah. right? You have you know, licenses with all sorts of amazing companies all over the world, as prestigious as the Ford Motor Company. You have products that are amazing, your, your apparel line and all the other products that you license, which people love to collect. You're one of the most amazing painters I've ever met, one of the most gifted painters I've ever met. My question for you is, mm. when do you sleep? Morris, coming from you, that's a, that's a hell of a compliment because one of the greatest experiences I've had this year was sitting and spending an hour with you uh, down you know, on the, on the deck below listening to your presentation oh, about the history oh, of art. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> and the very fact that, that you, you know, chose to, to talk a little bit about my art was... Uh, was a true honor. Later on, I guess we can pick up with some of the other comments you made during mm -hmm. that talk because I found it yeah, please. particularly relevant. Um, yes, when I have time to sleep, I I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I paint mostly at home, so not much on the road. What I was doing here uh, this week on the VIP art cruise is, of course, exceptional. I hardly ever paint on the road, mm -hmm. but I feel it's a special opportunity for not only the VIP guests but also the guests on board the ship yeah yeah to, let, to let have clarify for yeah. you know for our listeners you yeah. uh you had a painting that we offered for sale that mm -hmm. was about three-fourths finished would you say about three quarters yeah yeah. That, yeah and of course we sold it somebody bought yeah. it right away yeah and then you finished the painting on the ship right yeah it took yeah. a while it's all the fine details 
and as you so eloquently you know talked about I the two challenging parts of doing a painting are, are starting it and finishing it mm -hmm. but the finishing it is actually a very enjoyable part mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah yeah I'm always amazed that artists have the fortitude to do that and I often talk about that with our collectors that beginning the painting is fun right you have this great concept where you're going with the painting then the hard part starts right. the layers and layers right. of the tedious work building and building and building then finally at the end you get to put on the finishing touches all the details it comes into focus you sign it boom that's like the that's like the icing on the cake well, I'd like to get into a little bit about your background, your past. I know you were from Jamaica originally. Your family was a was a pretty old family in Jamaica, right? Go back quite a few years. Very old. They go back to 1664. Wow. My mother's ancestors were given land by Oliver Cromwell after the English Civil War. It ended wow. in 1645. Wow. They went first to Virginia and then to Jamaica. And in the old charts of Jamaica, in the southwestern portion, you can see... Uh, the name Williams across a big piece of land and that was their family name mm. and of course over the centuries that's been eroded and down to a couple thousand acres left now but it's still owned by my my mother's family mm -hmm. had a vibrant childhood um, with my mother who is a, a, a naturalist horse rider fishing girl my dad was two and we had a, a really wonderful childhood up to the age of four or five when I was sent to Kingston, which is 120 miles away, to boarding school with the family. Mm -hmm. And then age of eight, went to England to boarding school, mm -hmm. to another school at the age of 13, finished there, went to university at the age of 18 in Scotland, mm. and then finished up um, coming back to Jamaica in 1978 to start my PhD at the University of the West Indies. Mm -hmm. And there I've remained until, um, and a lot happened in those 20 odd years, uh, until 1999 when we moved to Grand Cayman, mm -hmm. where we still live. So you, you, you had this wonderful love of the sea and marine yes. life at a very early age. Yes. What about the painting part? I would come home and, and do some painting. Uh, I remember very clearly on the breakfast table, um, there's always birds and flowers around. My mum was a great gardener, but she's also, as I said, a naturalist, but she painted. She dabbled with painting and would help me and encourage me a great deal. And I think I probably owe a lot of my early influence to her. Then when I went to boarding school, we had a, a very good art teacher, and uh, her name was Gillian, which is coincidental, my Your wife is Gillian. Uh -huh. But she was interested because I was unusual. And in that way? I painted subject matter that was tropical, and, and being in a, in a temperate country, it was totally out of context. Right. But I, and I was painting from memory. Um, specific events, a lot to do with fishing and snorkeling. Um, but also, I got into, you know, in, in Britain post-war, I got into um, a lot of painting battleships and airplanes and, and mechanical stuff that was typical of a 10-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of interesting. I got into cartoons, tried a lot with all sorts of different things, but I loved to paint, uh, you know, model airplanes and ships and all that stuff. So it wasn't all fish-focused by any means or nature-focused. I would say by the age of 16... I was heavily influenced by Hemingway's book by then, by my mother's um, sort of insisting I read the story. And of course, I'd already fallen in love with this animal called the blue marlin, which is just the king of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And everybody strived to catch these fish uh, in those days. It was the ultimate game fishing experience, and still is for everybody who, who mm -hmm. pursues that sort of pursuit. Let's go back to Hemingway. You're yeah. referring, of course, to the famous Old Man in the Sea yes. by Hemingway. What is it from that book that specifically resonated for you at the time? 
and continues to do so because you still use that subject in your work and it's one of your most sought after subjects. Indeed, many things resonate. Firstly, the way he fished. In Jamaica, people caught large fish in small boats on hand lines and the way Hemingway wrote and described the fishing techniques of, of Santiago matched that exactly, so I could relate right away. The fact that he was catching a really large blue marlin uh, intrigued me because uh, typically in the Caribbean you don't see that adult-sized fish there. And so the massive size of the fish, the length of the battle, but his graphic descriptions of the coloration and the behavior of the fish were is as exactly as I had seen. Hmm. And here I am thinking, well, how, how did this guy write so accurately about this fish? He must have caught a bunch. And I had no access to his writing or his photographs or the books that came out about you know, his escapades in Bimini or Key West or in, in Havana at the time, concentrating on other things. And later realized just you know, how thorough his research had been. Hmm. And today I, I pride myself on painting and writing, describing my experiences with film even, because it, it, it is the time he spent in the field that he is conveying to the reader that is um, of prime importance to him. Mm -hmm. he, not only is he a hunter, but he's an angler, he's a naturalist, but on the water you can be all three mm -hmm. at once. Interesting, yeah. yeah, yeah. You told me that you had one book that had illustrations. Yeah. The first time you saw illustrations of the, of the novel. Yes. And then you have extended it by virtue of putting your own illustrations together, yes. which are now accurate in terms of the anatomy of the creature, right? Well, if, yeah. if you want to use that word, they resemble the fish more accurately <laughs> than, than Tunnicliffe's uh, efforts, which were good. Uh -huh. I, I found them many years after, but I thought, wow, you know, I, I did a much better job <laughs> in executing. Right. And took that to Hemingway's estate and said, hey, I'd like to uh, re-illustrate your book for you. And they said, no, we're happy with what we got, um, but we will give you permission to publish your own version, and you can use the original script, but you can't call it The Old Man's Sea. So I call my book Santiago's Finest Hour. Uh -huh. And it was the first book, first book we put out. And I gave all the proceeds to, back to the International Game Fish Association, uh, of which Hemingway was the first VP, mm. and on whose board I've sat since 1993, so Wonderful. I've been a board member for, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So it was a good give back, and my first venture into uh, publishing books, and I've done a couple more since then. Right. Yeah. I was intrigued when I found out that you're essentially a self-taught painter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a fairly straightforward start, I'd say, with the pen and ink work. Uh -huh. uh, I really enjoyed doing it. My mum tried to get me into watercolours, but I, I found my niche with, with pen and ink, especially cross-hatching, and it worked. And I didn't do anything with it for, for years until I first started having art shows at fishing tournaments in Jamaica, 19, I'm trying to think of the year, 1973, 74 and would sell little bits of art for 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks here and there, which converted into Jamaican dollars was, was some good, good chunk of change. <laughs> but it really took off in about, well, we had a political fracas with, with communism taking over in Jamaica. The tournaments ended, the middle class left, and so we stagnated from a fishing perspective for about six years. Then back in 82, the uh, change of government, everything was reactivated. And I went back to these tournaments and all of a sudden, with my art, and all of a sudden it was selling. Mm -hmm. And here come these guys from Florida who are you know, professional fishermen or in, in the business. And one who's a, a light tackle record holder has a t-shirt company. Mm -hmm. So that stuff is great. I can put that on shirts. Wow, so that was the first yeah. uh, inkling. So yeah. by 85, 
Um, I also had two one-man art shows, one in Kingston, one in Montego Bay that year. Did really well for Lauderdale Boat Show 86. And by then I had a contract going with a company called T-Shirts of Florida with this guy. And we never looked back. And by 1988, I had to make a decision. I was going to keep on uh, being a, a professor teaching marine sciences, or I was going to become an artist. Mm -hmm. And I made that transition mm -hmm. in '88. Well, it yeah. seems like you found the perfect balance mm -hmm. because you, now you're, you know, a highly successful, remarkably successful visual artist, but at the same time you're maintaining all of your love, you know, for the the. Uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But to go back to your original, to go back to your original question about you know the art, the styles. With the increased exposure, I had people asking me to use different media. How about doing a big painting? How about doing one with color? How about it? So I had to quickly adapt and adjust. Mm -hmm. Add watercolor to the pen and ink. It really worked. And for the bigger stuff, and as I said in my presentation, these animals I paint are large and they demand a big canvas mostly because mm -hmm. I like to do them life size. I had to go to canvas, so I went to oil. Mm -hmm. So now you work in pen and ink still, mm -hmm. still and with a lot of stippling, which mm -hmm. of course is the tiny little dots that form shadow effects. Not cost effective, but yeah. very, <laughs> but very effective very visually. Very difficult, yeah. Yeah, yeah, tedious, a lot of time yeah. involved. And for those that don't know the reference, cross-hatching, of course, is the way that you build up shadows by layering lines right. one over the other. And your cross-hatching is just meticulous and beautiful. I'm well, just astonished you. by your drawings. They're so incredible. Thank you. And so then you, you've moved into watercolor and acrylic and oil. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of mixed media, combinations of watercolor and acrylic on paper. Right. right? And you said that watercolor is now your favorite medium, which I think is interesting because it's the most difficult medium. I find it the easiest and because I like to work fast and it's it's so spontaneous. Mm -hmm. I love that part of it. But I do layer it pretty heavily to, to get the effect I want. And generally speaking, I'll do top side above surface pieces uh, in watercolor unless they're very large, and generally the underwater pieces, because the, to get that intense blue of the ocean, you can't do it with watercolor, mm -hmm. it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So I use acrylic for that, or oil for that, or blend it, and it works. I would like to have had uh, some kind of training, and people ask me all the time, would I teach them? Do I ever get, give classes? And I know many accomplished artists in the Society of Animal Artists do that, but I, I wouldn't know where to begin. <laughs> I, just, I just say, be bold. Go and try some stuff yeah. and see what yeah. works. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the obviously the drawback of being self-taught is you don't have the shortcuts that someone's right. going to teach well, you. You have to learn the the you know the the uh, trial and error. Right. You know, what works, what doesn't work. And right. That can be that can take a lot of time it to can. get to that point. You know, yeah. without the assistance of an instructor. Yeah. Um, you said something also very interesting, and that was the the notion that you find diving a, a tool to your art. Would you elaborate that? I think that was a fascinating uh, insight I, I got into your work. Diving is, is a very important component of, of everything I do, and it's one of the reasons I actually moved to Cayman was to have easier access to, to the sea, uh, which we certainly do now, um, because it's right there. You can just go and reference it anytime you want. It's reference, referencing open ocean animals or reef animals is not easy to do. It's not like you're sitting in a field watching birds or watching a gazelle or an elephant or a a cougar, which you can do for hours and hours and hours. You're limited. If you're snorkeling, you know, your body gets cold after a while. If you're on a tank, you're limited to about a maximum of an hour underwater at any time. And then you have to have a surface interval before you can go back, which is fine. But it, it just limits the available interactions with the animals that you're seeking. 
and particularly the open ocean animals that are rare in the first place. And you can't just jump into the open ocean and expect a marlin to swim by or a white shark or a mako or a, a bluefin tuna. You have to go to certain places, uh, spend the time, spend the money uh, to interact with the animals. And therefore, the time with the animal when you do finally meet it is so valuable. You have to be, if you're filming, you have to be really ready with everything to go. But if you're just looking as I do to capture it on board on, in that onboard computer, you have to be looking in the right place at the right time too. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky. And sometimes you miss. Sometimes sure. you miss a lot. Sometimes you come back with nothing. But often you do get lucky and you might get into one of those natural um, predator-prey interactions. Um, you see so often on, on Nat Geo nowadays or you know, Discovery Channel, the scenes of a cheetah chasing a Thompson's gazelle and the smoke and the drama and the blood and to capture that same interaction underwater is almost impossible. But I've, I've refined it, I've got to the right places at the right time of year to anticipate seeing that. Yeah. And um, that alone is an accomplishment. And of course, to bring back those experiences to the, the observer through film, through painting, through just talking about it, is of course very gratifying. Yeah. Let's talk about your research institute mm -hmm. and your foundation. Mm -hmm. I know this is a huge part of your work and it dovetails perfectly into your painting. It's a wonderful extension of your painting. They, they feed each other. They do, uh, yeah. So tell us about the kind of work you're doing. I found it so fascinating and how that's you know become such an important part of your life and, and giving back. The first thing that was laid down for me when I introduced the, the subject to Dr. Shivji, the director of my institute currently, been the director for 18 years, is that he said, you have to be serious that you want to publish papers. This is not a joke. This is not, you know, you're not going to fool around and pretend to do stuff and um, embellish or, you know, otherwise embarrass a research organization. You want to be serious about it. Let's get that understood from the very beginning. He said that being a scientist myself, I said, I entirely understand my mood, and uh, that's what I'm striving for. Mm -hmm. This is not, uh, you know, a sort of amusement uh, channel for my um, for my artistic brand. It's this is here, so I want to do it. So we set out by carving out some of the licensing proceeds into uh, his research work. I was piggybacking on his work at Nova, and as the business grew, so the contributions grew, and when we got serious, we actually found other streams of income apart from my own licensing programs. And that came about because the, the foundation got going and the foundation came almost 10 years later and its single role was to really fundraise. So the Institute already had a track record by the time the foundation was formed, but we needed backup and we needed um, a, an organization that could execute outreach. Because it's all very well doing research on sharks or billfishes or whatever, and it's no good if the public doesn't hear about the results. Sure. And it's no good if there aren't any beneficial consequences to the resource of this effort, and of course the, the time and money that goes into it. So these have to be research projects, he said, that are going to be you know, earth-breaking, they're going to be groundbreaking, they're going to be new, they're going to be important, they're going to change fisheries management. That's our goal. Uh, and so we've actually done that for many different species. We have opened up the natural history of animals like tiger sharks, mako sharks, oceanic white-tip sharks, the big ocean sharks, done a lot of work on white sharks. Mahmoud is a geneticist in his original career, 
and he's done a lot of forensic work in the shark fin trade, probably his most important work. And by that I mean identifying body parts and all these animals that are chopped up and you can't identify what they are, even if you're a skilled fishery scientist, mm -hmm. you couldn't tell. So that part of it was all good. We infiltrated the Hong Kong shark fin trade and that was probably some of his greatest work. He, mm -hmm. he was able to estimate how many millions of sharks get killed a year wow. um, through uh, extrapolation, of course. And we couldn't do that now because they'd never be let back in that trade. The, the, the cover is broken to yeah. <laughs> It was groundbreaking work and those are numbers that people use, all the press, all the people quoting the destructive exploitation of sharks um, around the world. They use our data. But some other cool examples are um, in the Bahamas. All the target shark research we did here in Bermuda and in the Bahamas, because it's all linked, ended up showing the Bahamian government how important their archipelago was to the annual migration of not only target sharks, but other species like uh, reef sharks, black tips, lemon sharks, and silky sharks. And this is in around 2010. 2011, we did presentations to the Bahamian government because they were facing the situation where a Chinese construction company was coming to build a giant hotel in Nassau and they, in exchange for all the things they're bringing, they want fishing rights. And guess what? They want access to sharks. And there's a big petition. We said, no, you can't possibly do it. They'll take everything. And in the end, we did this scientific presentation to the Bahamas National Trust and the government and their tourist board. And by 2011, they had basically um, protected sharks and put it into legislation in, in July 2011. But on the other side of it, they also have a, a burgeoning shark ecotourism business. And that allows you to go diving with sharks as we do, spend all that money, charter the people's, you know, the socioeconomic benefits from, from diving and fishing. Is, it's been well studied. People spend a lot of money doing that. And they estimated 80 to $100 million per year is spent on shark ecotourism. Uh, interesting. Not killing a single animal. Mm -hmm. Last year, $220 million was spent in Florida alone mm. on shark ecotourism. And they probably made uh, $1.5 million in sales on shark fins. And so, you know, anybody who's uh, uh, a, deci a decision maker or a legislator should understand the socioeconomic value of the living animal is, mm -hmm. is the point we're making. So we carry that throughout the Caribbean. It's worked really well. And five countries have now protected sharks legally, which is good. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's just one aspect of our work. You know, We've got projects going on in all over the place. Galapagos, Panama, Costa Rica, Mexico, uh, USVI, Cayman, of course, where I live. Um, all up and down the eastern seaboard. And you've done a lot of work uh, mapping the uh, routes of these of these animals all over the world through the tagging system. Talk about that for a moment. Absolutely. The advance of technology, the, the use of uh, mini computers placed on the dorsal fins of these animals that cover tens of thousands of miles a year uh, in their migrations. Uh, we've opened up their, their life cycle. It's It's been very gratifying work. The problem is that many of these animals, which we call highly migratory, are that they, they will go into the waters, the territorial waters of many different countries in a single year, and the issue is, you know, who owns them, who manages them, who is responsible for these fish, mm -hmm. and of course, like the tunas, they become extremely valuable. And the bluefin tuna, which is the largest of all the tunas, 
is now the most valuable animal on the planet. Really? Individual fish sell for over a million dollars at the market. Seriously? Yeah. Individual wow. fish. Wow. So the hunt will never go away. Right. Yep. Too economically driven. Mm-hmm. So the information that you provide, it's, it's passed on to uh, academic institutions, people studying? Yes, that? and more importantly to, to NOAA and to National Marine Fisheries Service who, who make all the decisions regarding, you know, time and area closures, seasons, uh, slot sizes. You know, you, you obviously don't want to fish an animal when it's breeding, so the closing the close season will be over the breeding season. That's why it's important to find out when they breed, mm-hmm. like we do with the groupers in Cayman. They breed in January and February and March. So finally, we got the government to have a no-take law between November and the end of April. So you, you cover that entire area. Because if you're killing an animal while it's reproducing, it's just absolutely crazy fisheries management. It just doesn't make sense. Would you talk about the distinction between preservation and conservation? Because I know you draw that distinction. Yes. I, most people aren't familiar with that. That's a really good question because I'm a fisherman. I'm a, I used to shoot birds with my dad, with a great shot, so I do a little bit of hunting. But I, I do it in a sustainable fashion. And if we caught a fish, he would say, you're going to have to scale it and clean it and ask, the chef, ask our cook to show you how to cook it so that you know the entire process. You take responsibility for this animal that you've, you've caught or you've killed. And of course, there were days when I, I shot and killed stuff that I shouldn't have done. <laughs> and. Uh, as a kid, you, you do that. And he made you pay for it, basically. So you build up this respect for different animals. And if you're not going to consume them, then, then let them go. That's the first thing. In terms of conservation, I tell people I'm not a tree hugger. You know, I, I catch and eat fish. But if I'm out marlin fishing and I catch a marlin, take out the hook, revive him, let him go. If I catch a mahi-mahi or a wahoo or a nice yellowfin tuna, he's coming in the boat because I'm taking him <laughs> home. They're, they're great to eat and they, they are a resource that's not under as much stress as, say, sharks or billfish are, for example. So that's one thing. On the other side of it is, is preservation, which is where you, you can mark off an area, call it a marine park, and have a rule that says you cannot take anything out of it. That's preservation. So there's no extraction, there's no use, uh, not even sustainable use. It's letting it it go, um, keeping a piece of rainforest, keeping a piece of reef, completely keeping humans away from it completely. Of course, you know, you've got the influence of increased temperature, uh, plastic pollution, any kind of pollution that can invade an area. But as far as human interaction is concerned, the area is preserved mm-hmm. and they have relevance more and more these days than ever before because of all the pressures that we put on all kinds of resources. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. Conservation is sustainable use under rules and regulations. Preservation is no extraction or use whatsoever. Interesting. If our listeners <coughs> would like to contribute and participate in some of your conservation and preservation efforts, how can they go about doing that? We have a website at guyharvey.com or GuyHarveyOceanFoundation.org. You can make donations online. That's the best way to do it. We have a volunteer group in Cayman where I live, and we have quite a few volunteers at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, where we're based at the Oceanographic Center. It's a beautiful building near right in Port Everglades, actually. You sail right by it. It's a beautiful place. Um, both those are places and ways you can make contributions. 
when they buy products too. I, think. And they, I was going to say they buy Guy Harvey shirt. You buy the licensed products. The apparel is probably the most easily affordable piece of art, wearable art. I see them and everywhere, by the way. Well, thank you, <laughs> yeah, thank it. you very much. And so, in in doing in buying Guy Harvey merchandise, you are becoming not only a team member, but you're actually making a direct contribution mm -hmm. because we put back. It's about ten percent of our gross goes back into um, into marine research work. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad to say we have a bunch of corporate sponsors. We have a brewery company, for example, that gives back five cents for every beer drunk in Cayman to our shark research program. They want specifically sharks. We've got other corporate sponsors, some some of the um, the financial services business there. We have Tag Hire in Cayman. They they donate five percent of gross to um, on my watches to our foundation. Then in Florida, one of the best things is you could buy a Florida license, a specialty license, license plate, a yeah. guy have a license plate. That's one of our biggest sources of revenue. Um, we've done other things. Ooh, what can I think of? Uh, the Florida Lottery has supported us. Uh, where by <laughs> I'm not into gambling, but my artwork is used uh, on their tickets, and we get a percentage of sales back. So if you buy the buy those tickets, we get back a, a percentage of sales that goes. Back into it has to be into our educational programs, which is a good year mark as far as I'm concerned, because we do a lot of educational programs in Florida. We have ten different scholarships for five thousand dollars each a year. We give out to different universities in Florida that supports that. There's lots of other cool ways we we support students directly. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm just so impressed with the rarity of you know, who you are as a person and what you, you <clears throat> are accomplishing every day in your life. It's so extraordinary to meet someone who is a scientist and is so fully steeped in your, your work and your research and your commitment to preservation and conservation. And at the same time, it's just an amazing artist. I mean, you just don't run well, into people like that <clears throat> very often. Well, thank you. And I'm just, I'm just <clears throat> you know, so blown away by the quality of everything that you do. Well, thank you. the highest Mark. level of excellence in, in all your pursuits. The, the truth is, though, that we're a team. Yes, we <laughs> That's are. That's not me. Sure, I'm, I'm the only producer of the artwork. And it's funny, because I get, I get this question asked quite a bit. Do you do all your own painting? Mm -hmm. And it's to me, it's it's a ridiculous question to ask somebody, <laughs> but I guess there are artists who have you know helpers. But um, no, sure, I do all my own work, and you know I, I enjoy doing it. But as far as the the business goes, we're a team. As far as the research goes, we're a team. As far as the outreach goes, we're a team. And I'm very glad that my my son Alex and my daughter Jessica are team members now. Mm -hmm. They always have been, but they're now paid team members. Mm -hmm. Jessica runs the K-Man projects and Alex runs my um, social media and some of my marketing efforts. Mm -hmm. So it's great they're in there too. No, I couldn't do without the team. And of course, Gillian, who you have met, is a huge supporter, even more so now that she's retired from her job. But she was very inspirational in just making me formalize my, my artistic ability in my career and um, get help in organizing mm -hmm. exhibitions and reaching out to people. One of whom, Kent Ulberg, who is a member of the National Academy now, he's one of the few artists I know in the National Academy, a sculptor, Swedish, um, went to Botswana for seven years, worked as a professional hunter, um, did a, lots of dioramas, great painter, but sculpting is now his sort of main art form. Got found by the Denver Museum of Natural History, migrated there, 
worked there for a long time, set up his own business in Texas, his foundries in Colorado, and has become America's most famous wildlife sculptor. He's probably one of my very best friends and of all people helped formalize my approach to, to fine art, to dealing with museums, to doing exhibitions, um, the real formal side of it and having being part of the traveling trade, traveling art shows. Um, he got me to become a member of the SAA. He wrote the foreword of my autobiography, which I think you have a copy. Well, you may have a copy on the in the gallery here, but do read it because it's it's every word he says I think is is very accurate. What's the title of the book? It's my book is called Portraits from the Deep. Portraits from the Deep. Okay. Um, his autobiography is called Monuments to Nature, mm-hmm. but Kent has been through all the formal channels, German art school, all this stuff. He speaks like six languages. Uh, he's 73 now. If I had a mentor in, in the art world, he was that person. Well, it's nice yeah. to know that there are yeah. actual people that you look up to. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, and, and I collect art. We, we collect a lot of art. Um, I've loved Kent's species, actually, because he does... And it's, it's the real reason why I don't do sculpture, mm-hmm. because he does it the way I would do it. And I certainly wouldn't want to, A, compete with him, and B... I just don't have the time worried to do it, mm-hmm. so just stick with my strength. Well, thanks, Guy, for being with us. As oh, I said, cool. it's just an honor to have you here, and um, if our listeners are not familiar with your work, they mm-hmm. can certainly visit the uh, Park West website, which is parkwestgallery.com, but I'm sure you have lots of other venues available, your own website to see your work. We, we do, Yeah, and it's important to know that Park West has the largest collection of my original artwork that I've ever put together, which it's is which is really great. Yeah. Because you guys do an amazing job. You reach all the corners of the earth that you know we could never even reach, even with social media. Mm-hmm. It's quite different for, for people to go and look at art and, and touch it and feel it and, and feel the vibrance and the quality of, of what you produce, the framing, the, the whole package and have it delivered. Um, compared to just looking at something on a on a computer. So I think that's the real strength is you get it in front of so many eyeballs all around the world with such professionalism. Yeah. Well, thank you. And talking with Albert, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. a human being. Yes, he is. He's, he's remarkable. <laughs> I he, love him. A founder and CEO of our company. He's an extraordinary I, man. I love talking with Albert. He's had yeah. the vision to create this, this company and bring mm-hmm. art to, as you say, all corners of the world in mm-hmm. a different way. And that's our goal. You know, it we is. We want to bring art to everybody and yeah. give everyone a chance to once again be enriched by the world of art because a lot of it's been thrown under the bus, as you know. Yeah. You know, and the whole elitism and the whole, uh, you know, it's not for you. you know, right. This is, we have to know a lot of, about art before we can understand it. Right. And it's just not true. You know, and right. you're a perfect, you're a shining example of that. Someone who makes these exquisitely beautiful paintings that people love to collect and appreciate and your work adorns all sorts of products all over the world people can you know enjoy your work in all kinds of manifestations so keep up the great work thank you I hope that we can sit down together a few years in the future and see where you've come since then and I can't wait to see your first sculpture (laughs) (laughs) thank you Guy Harvey thank you very much Morris thank you Park West Thank you for listening to Parkwest Gallery's Behind the Artist. To learn more about Parkwest Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.